Hi everyone, welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought-provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. Hi, and welcome back to Invested. On today's episode, we had a great opportunity to dive into a topic that has the world abuzz, artificial intelligence. Sarah and I were extremely lucky to have a chance to speak with Ashley Orth, a senior investment strategy analyst at Invesco, where she is part of the Global Market Strategy Office. Ashley and her colleagues have recently published an excellent series of white papers on the topic of artificial intelligence, and we felt very fortunate she was able to spend some time with us and share some of her insights. In the episode, we talk with Ashley about AI's recent skyrocketing popularity, the current capabilities of AI, what to expect from upcoming developments in the field of artificial intelligence. And we also discuss balancing the potential benefits with some of the potential risks associated with the proliferation of AI applications. In her role at Invesco, Ashley develops and communicates economic outlooks with investment insights with a particular focus on macroeconomic analysis. Additionally, she researches and creates thought leadership pieces to help articulate the firm's thematic viewpoints. Ms. Orr's insights have been featured in publications including Bloomberg, Financial Times, Business Insider, Trends Magazine, and the Japan Times. She also has been previously published in the Journal of Investing. Ashley began her career with Oppenheimer Funds in 2016, where she worked with the investment strategy team and joined Invesco when the firm combined with Oppenheimer in 2019. Previously, she worked at High Frequency Economics as a research coordinator. She earned a BA degree in economics and political studies from Bard College at Simons Rock in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And she also completed the Bard Globalization and International Affairs program as part of her studies. She is also a Chartered Financial Analyst, or CFA. With that, let's get to our talk with Ashley Orth from Invesco. Hi, and welcome back to Invested. Today, we're speaking with Ashley Orth, a Senior Investment Strategy Analyst with Invesco. Thank you, Ashley, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and joining us from the UK. So it's good morning, our time, good evening, your time. So we appreciate you making a space for us. Across the pond. Yeah, it's across the <laughs> pond. It's coffee time for us, tea time for you, I guess. I actually am having tea. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> So we're here to talk about AI, uh, and you know we've been doing another series of podcasts on alternative investments, which for a while was called AI, and now we've, of course we have to change that and call that alts. We can't at all refer to that as AI now. So, but uh, artificial intelligence—it's been around for a while. This is really nothing new, although it's you would think it's something brand new. Um, but there's been a lot of stuff in the news, obviously. And just looking at the evolution at it, of it, it's going from, we've gone from spell checking to grammar checking, and now we can take some words and put it into an input and actually get a, a letter or a paper, although some would argue there are some significant flaws that show up with some of, of that data when it comes through. But it's certainly, it's it's been dominating the news since uh, chat GPT came out in November of, of last year, and it kind of seems like we can't get away from the topic. And so whether that's hey, it's coming up in the writer's strike, or it's in news stories about deep fakes, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the future of AI and some of the precarious things that it can get into, um, or commercials that just talk about how AI has improved this product or is involved in the making of this product and, and into the marketing of certain products. So before we get into kind of the, the nitty gritty of how does it work and where are we going and how do we invest, can you just kind of give us an overview of your take on AI and how you define it and how we should look at it? And, you know, we kind of think the term artificial intelligence is very, very broad. And so how do we narrow it down and kind of figure out what it is we're talking about? Sure. And, and that's exactly right. I do think that AI is unfortunately a very vague term. 
I think that at its core, if we were to try to define it, it's really about just mimicking some kind of uh, intelligent or, in other words, human process. So this word AI, not alternative investments, yeah. but artificial intelligence, it's really used interchangeably today for everything from voice assistance to product and content recommendation uh, to even your refrigerator telling you that you're out of milk. So, you know, with the, the launch of, of ChatGPT uh, late last year, AI now also means being able to interact with and instruct really uh, a system that's capable of generating these sort of rich, unique, and topical responses. And that's where we find today's generative AI craze, which is, again, really embodied by the, the launch of ChatGPT, but really there's so many other models out there today. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and I, we do want to get into the predictive nature of all that and what it does and, and how it works. But one of the things I found interesting is if you go into chat GPT and you ask the same question a couple of different ways, it's not like you get the exact same response every time. Why is, why is that? Yeah. And I, I think this is part of what's like really great about interacting with it that it makes it feel almost human to interact with is that, uh, like you said, it's not giving you sort of like a pre-formatted response for every question you ask it. Rather, it sort of gives this impression of creativity. And what's really going on in the background is that it was trained on a, a huge amount of data that it sort of has formed an understanding of which concepts are connected to which. And when you ask it a question, it's sort of activating parts of its brain to sort of say, okay, which word is going to come next? But it's not going to say which word in particular, but rather what are the possible words that may follow. And so there's sort of like a like a dice roll that's happening each time that says, okay, there's a probability that this will be the next word or that and so on and so forth. And that's how we get these sorts of uh, rich and varied responses that we get from it. Uh, and I think that's, you know, part part of the, the genius of it is that, you know, again, you can have, um, you know, a, a prompt that says, write me an email and it'll give you uh, a few different versions of that email with each time you ask it. So yeah. uh, I think it can be quite helpful from the creative aspect of exactly, you know, what you may be uh, using it for. And can you just touch on the difference what, between narrow AI and generative AI and, and LLMs, which is large language models, right? And like just some of those, those uh, we love abbreviating everything. So some of those, yes. those uh, topics and names and abbreviations. That's the name of the game. It's alphabet soup, right? Yeah. <laughs> so with um, let's, let's start with narrow AI. So the, the distinction between narrow AI and sort of uh, like general or all-purpose AI is that narrow AI is really something that's uh, uh, created for a particular task or a particular process. Um, it's really about trying to solve a problem that you give it. Um, or a problem that has been constructed and then the AI built around that problem. Um, so you can think of that AI as sort of like a solution for that. It has a narrow use case. Um, this general AI is really the stuff of science, like, uh, science fiction. So you know, if you think of um, like Jarvis from Iron Man or Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's really um, you know, this, this AI that is sort of almost free thinking it's it's a almost a, a sentient intelligence uh, in many ways, uh, and that's really still the realm of science fiction. We're nowhere near that kind of uh, level of tech, and right. I, I don't know when we may be. Uh, <laughs> but you know, for the, for the purpose of uh, the world we're working in today, we're really still in that narrow AI realm. Maybe that's some kind of comfort for us all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, the, the next part of that, so going on to the alphabet soup. So these LLMs or large language models, it's really just a, a catch-all way of describing these various uh, generative AI models like ChatGPT um, and like others from other uh, um, tech companies that um, they're taking huge amounts of data. And again, going through that process where they try to have a, a what amounts to a machine understand it. And based on that understanding, it's able to, you know, be interacted with similar to our experience with, you know, for example, ChatGPT. Um, so LLMs is really just a, a broad category um, that we can stuff all of these, these generative AI models, at least from the perspective of dealing with language, because yep. LLM is a large language model. Um, that's just a, you know, an umbrella term, if you will. And then there's another part to your question, I, I apologize. 
no, I just think, you know, one of the things that we were talking about earlier, Sarah and I were, so why did this come out so fast? I mean, it just, it just seemed to ex- explode onto the, the news networks and, and everywhere all of a sudden. Because the reality is, you know, AI has been around forever. Let, let's think back to when we were kids or when I was a kid playing chess on our computers. I mean, that was, that's AI. It's, you know, predictive responses and playing a game. Yeah, absolutely. I think of AI in a lot of ways as sort of being um, kind of like a flow chart in some way that like you sort of have this range of possibilities and you're giving it an input and it's supposed to process that that data that you've given it and do something with it. But of course, in today's environment, we sort of have exploded that into um, so much data with so much sophistication in the way it's processed that it's become obviously much more complex than just playing a chess game, but today is able to understand, you know, languages or images or, or, or more. Uh, so obviously with saying all this, we have a long history that underlies this. So when we look at generative AI today, it, it feels like it came out sort of all of a sudden that it just hit the, the, the limelight and, you know, this it's all we've been hearing about in 2023. Uh, but it really, I think, betrays the, the history that is built up to this moment, that um, we've had these successive improvements in not just the models that underlie this, the you know artificial intelligence more generally, um, but also we've had improvements in computing power and how much right. data we can feed to these, these models, such that they've been able to not just become more sophisticated in how the model is run, but also in how it interprets and handles data. Uh, so that's really what is built up to this moment. The, I think, accelerating factor was in 2017 that there was this uh, um, research paper uh, authored by Google's AI research unit uh, that after that was published, the sort of um, realm of understanding human language was just blown open because uh, suddenly we weren't just understanding you know, each word in a sentence in its sequence, but also able to understand the context in which those words appear. And with that moment, we really were off to the races and mm. there's just been a, a breakneck speed of development since. So it's really an exciting time to be seeing these models, but also I think for somebody who's only just seeing it in the presses today, uh, it, it can feel like it just happened with a bang. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, we, we know that there's gonna be challenges and potentially dangers, um, but, you know, we don't think it's going to take over the world. So let's talk about kind of the differences between on that data set piece, the differences between learning, thinking, and then between predicting and being creative. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I had a colleague who um, who put it to me as sort of you're speaking with a clever parrot that it's able to <laughs> repeat back to you like the, the words and, and sentences, phrases, et cetera, that it's seen before. But the clever part of it is that it's able to also understand the context component. But at the end of the day, it's not really thinking, which maybe that's an offense to parrots, but <laughs> we won't go there. We won't tell them, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all right. I don't have a parrot. So I don't saying. know. There are some parrots I enjoy talking to some more than other people. So yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's nothing to be found there, right? <laughs> so um, really, at the end of the day, these LLMs, these large language models, they're working by understanding, as I mentioned before, sort of the interrelationships of words and concepts and the frequencies with which they appear together. Uh, so when you give one of these models a prompt, like you write it a question, it's sort of picking out those different you know, concepts that it's recognized based on what it was trained on and sort of, again, activating like parts of its brain that it then uses to sort of... Uh, um, you know, predict the words that follow from that. Um, and so it, it can give the appearance of intelligence. And it's, you know, I, I think that I'm sort of um, understating how powerful it can be. Uh, it can truly do some really impressive things. I had it uh, write a poem earlier today in the style of Henry David Thoreau about relaxing by the beach. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this <laughs> is surprisingly like touching. <laughs> uh, but so it's, you know, I think that its performance can't be uh, understated. AI made me cry today. Day, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. AI made me cry today. <laughs> no, the, the worst moment was that I had um, this uh, poem about um, traffic lights that I saw. This was like one of my true like revelation moments with, with uh, Gen AI. 
was that I saw this poem about traffic lights and it sounded absolutely ridiculous. And then I read the poem and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> traffic lights have meaning. It's going to be interesting to see how AI plays into academia because, you know, back in the day there used to be, um, what was like the plagiarism site? Like when you were a kid, when you entered in, when you submitted an essay to your teacher, you had to submit it through a plagiarism site to make sure that it was your words. It's like turn it in, I think. Yeah, exactly. Like thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it wasn't on the tip of my tongue. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So I'm curious to see how that's going to kind of change how uh, students and our, our youth kind of put together their responses to essays and those types of research pieces um, when truly they can enter in, write me a poem about stoplights and voila. No, I, I I truly think that that is um, you know an issue to be to be grappled with, and I, I don't have the answers of exactly how to do that. Um, but I, I will say that when you're dealing with responses from something like ChatGPT, that there is a certain hallmark to the way it writes that you can sort of pick up on over time. That you can sort of like get this I don't know a kind of an eerie feeling to say like there's something about this that feels off, right? Yeah. So maybe there's a way of building systems, and maybe this is already in the works, uh, that could sort of pick up on those hallmarks that we are you know, intuitively sensing, um, that could, similar to how those plagiarism websites, be able mm -hmm. to, to sort of say, okay, this this has a high probability of being written by a, a Gen AI. They can now, predict the of course, it's an arms race. You'll always right. be able to game the system. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's the world we live in today, isn't it? Well... And it, I kind of see like we've seen new technologies, well, at least those of us that have been around forever, uh, seen new technologies come out. And it seems like there's, you know, we, we would call it kind of a, a bullwhip response to that. So there's a this hyper, uh, the phenomenon, the euphoria around something new coming out and it's going to change everything and it's going to change it radically and it's going to change it forever. And then there's this sort of lull and period of disappointment when we realize, oh, no, it's not going to change everything and life will go on as we know it for the most part. But it does influence some things. But then there is some later adaption to that and it kind of peaks back up again, but just not to that same euphoric level. Where do you think we are in AI or generative AI in that cycle? Are we overhyping it or is it, you know, are we in that lull? Are we just in the euphoria period? Yeah, this this sounds like what is it? The the Gartner hype cycle is sort yeah, of like that right. stylized exactly. full whip. Yeah, it's I, I think it's a useful framework to approach this kind of like explosive moment where we just are suddenly hearing about it and seeing it everywhere. And I think that's with with Gen AI, it's it's really tough to appreciate where we fall into that hype cycle. Uh, I think that the the sort of input technologies that have enabled it have gone through their own, you know, varieties of, uh, of, of hype cycles. Uh, they've had these sorts of booms and busts periods of, you know, euphoria and, and then just, you know, uh, depression. <laughs> and, but really, I think that these, these previous forms of AI as well, um, we've, we've seen them crop up in all walks of life that, um, you know, everything from, you know, uh, the way we, we route to uh, like cloud computing to how we approach content recommendation to uh, even driverless cars. There's all sorts of moments that we've sort of been through uh, along the way. And I think that along each one of these steps, we get a bit less disillusioned. All of that said, I do think we're in a period where expectations are really climbing much faster than even the most bullish of earnings estimates can. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think that is a, a, a point of concern. Um, but on the flip side, I would say, unlike some previous hype cycles, we do already have meaningful results. We are able to, uh, to, to see it yourself, like seeing is believing, right? And the fact that we can all talk about ChatGPT and similar platforms means that we can just log on, not even have to pay anything really, and be able to access these large language models and play with them and see, you know, with our own eyes or keyboards, uh, that we can actually interact with these and have uh, quite creative, touching even, uh, or impressive outputs. So I think that that fact sort of helps, I guess, accelerate us in that hype cycle that not only is it a matter of we're excited about this, but we actually have results that underlie it. I think at this point, it's a matter of how we get from 
that excitement and the proof of concept, which is, which is really what we've been playing with, yeah. and then integrate that into, into products, into our economy in a way that's meaningful and actually, you know, brings forward the sorts of, uh, you know, most optimistic forecasts of what it may do to our lives or productivity and so on and so forth. And, and you know, with that hype, I think there are two sides of that hype. There's, mm -hmm. there's the, you know, fear and greed, right? The, the, <laughs> the fear is, oh, it's going to mean all of these bad things. And, and, and I'd like to get your take on that. But then also the, the, the greed side or the benefits and opportunity side, which I think are very real. So what are, you know, as you're going around and presenting, I'm sure you're hearing a lot of these questions. What are, what are some of the things on the, on the fear side that you're hearing? Yeah, so um, I think that there's a lot of fears here. I feel like it's sort of awakened something, you know, deeply human within us yeah. that we're sort of like, oh, no, the machines are taking over. And so I, I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, questions or fears that stem from that. I would say chief among them is this fear of the of loss of jobs that people, you know, fundamentally fear being replaced. And I think that's appreciable after, you know, you you play with these sorts of models and see what they're capable of. That you're like, oh my gosh, it you know wrote a whole paper in you know 30 seconds, and it took me you know <laughs> 30 days. Hey, yeah. Right. And yeah. Yeah, that that can that can sting, right? Uh, but of course, you know, there's there's ways of of thwarting that kind of fear. That's um, while these tools are powerful, and you know, some estimates say they can outcompete to some human labor. I'm personally not so worried. Uh, for example, despite years of advances in AI preceding Gen AI, we've yeah. had all sorts of uh, fears about what it may do to all manners of jobs. Uh, like I said, we have AI and like content recommendation and um, all sorts of, of other functions. Uh, but we still have today one of the tightest labor markets on record that Absolutely. people are still finding jobs. And we have many employers saying that's, it's actually difficult to find people to have to to, uh, to fill jobs. Uh, so I, I think that we can find some comfort in the fact that economies are, you know, always evolving. They're they're vibrant things that you know, even if there's a technology that uh, emerges, we're still able to have everyone you know be able to find a job if they're looking for one, right? So I think that that is is some comfort to me. Um, I would also highlight that Gen AI, for all of its you know impressive capabilities, does have a lot of shortcomings. Still, uh, it is prone to making mistakes. It's prone to um, you know just making up untruths, uh, right. this so-called um, um, hallucinations. And you know, I, I think there's some great examples of that. I've read about a story one time with a lawyer who used it to write a, le uh, um, a legal opinion. And it cited all kinds of case law, but then when a judge was actually reading it saying, none of these cases exist. <laughs> and that's because the, it just fabricated all of that. Yeah. So, but it said with enough clearly, confidence that it sounds like it's a legit. <laughs> yes, exactly. It speaks yeah. with such confidence. It yeah. writes with such confidence yeah. that it, it really feels convincing. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's, it's something you still need to be wary of. You still need to fact check it. Right. And so you can't really write your, you know, for any listeners out there that are working on like a term paper or something, you, you can't use it to write your, your term paper. Either. I, I was talking uh, with my, my brother, who's a, a professor of biology, and he logged into chat GPT and he said, Hey, let's give this thing, you know, give me a paper about this. And he, he said, I started reading it. And I was blown away at, and he said, I, there's all this research that I, I haven't seen this research. What, you know, I've never, I, I haven't read that paper. And then he went to go look up the papers and he's like, this is all made up. <laughs> this is all nonsense. That's how it's novel research, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, if, if research is faking it. Yeah. Um, I would also add all, to all of that, that not only does it make mistakes, but this stuff is also quite expensive to not just train to actually get a, a model up and running, but even every time you ask it a question, that itself comes with a cost. We aren't paying for it if we're, you know, a free user or um, if we're, you know, paying maybe a monthly subscription. But in the in the background, there's actually significant costs that go into actually powering these models. And over time, those could really uh, grow quite quickly. So it's not like we can just go and say, oh, this is a free tool we can implement everywhere and anywhere. Rather, it, it does still come with a cost. So I think that's also worth keeping in mind. 
So on the whole jobs front, I'm actually um, feeling quite good about that outlook. I would say back to your, your question about sort of fears that, that I've seen. Another is along this uh, idea of like a, a loss of control that people are sort of afraid of, you know, an AI run amok that yeah. for whatever reason it's able to disobey us and, you know, go and get the nuclear launch codes or something like that and, you know, cause all kinds of havoc. Uh, but I think that, that, you know, to this point, we can rest assured that today we have hundreds of thousands of software engineers in the world that they have their jobs in many ways precisely because of how difficult it is to maintain technology, uh, how we're always updating and changing things and how one update may go and break something you may not even ever expect would, would be linked. And I think it's bold to assume that an AI would be able to navigate all that environment while also dealing with the constraints of what abilities it actually has. If we're dealing with a chatbot, yeah. all it's able to do is write chat back to us. If we're dealing with uh, an AI that has some, you know, maybe control over how it routes, I don't know, network traffic, you know, it's not going to go and suddenly magically develop a kill switch and, you know, maliciously hold on to that until just the right moment. So yeah, I still think that a lot of those ideas are more the results of Hollywood rather than, you know, anything that is real world. What yeah, about threats about cybersecurity? I'm sorry? Threats about cybersecurity? and maybe um, misuse of personal information. Any fears kind of centered around that? So I, I do think that there's some valid fears along cybersecurity. So there's there's sort of two buckets I put this into. Number one is that humans are still fallible and that if we can have, for example, a phishing email that looks incredibly convincing written right. by one of these programs, and it is completely possible. I've, I've done it. I'm ashamed to admit. Not <laughs> not phishing, but you sent me that email. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, Paul. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I do think that um, because these can seem ever more convincing and have, you know, fewer mistakes in them, it can make it more difficult to detect sure. when, you know, there is a sort of um, a potential cyber threat or um, malicious actor that's coming after you. Um, for example, if you go and feed a, a model some contents of your social media profile, plus you know whatever you know phishing um, method you're trying to use, you could put together something that looks quite convincing. So that that's actually a, a valid fear, I think, and people need to always be you know aware of, of uh, exactly how these things can how these attacks can play out, uh, so they can thwart them. So there's that angle. The other angle, I would say is that um, these AI models, they're not just writing in text that you know us as humans can read and understand. It's also able to uh, produce code. It can write programs. Now, of course, we need to give it instructions for what program to actually write. Um, but if we could use an AI to, um, for example, explore all kinds of attack vectors for how to breach a system by sort of just creatively trying a variety of different things repeatedly until something works, that could be a new uh, threat angle that we must be prepared to defend against. And that's where we have, you know, cybersecurity solutions to, um, to repel those, right? And that's where we actually have a lot of um, cybersecurity companies that do exactly that, that they have these sorts of intelligent response, um, you know, AI driven softwares that uh, are able to sort of think in the same kind of logic to be able to uh, to respond to you know new and emergent threats. Back to so, your arms race you were mentioning. Exactly. I, yeah. I think that a lot of this comes down to an arms race. We can think about that as well in terms of misinformation. Um, there's a lot that goes on there as yeah. well. That there can be you know misinformation, but at the other hand, we can also use AI to try to detect that. What about on the on the benefits and opportunities side? Um, what you know, where you're seeing the wider application of AI, whether that's you know productivity or living conditions, those kinds of things. Yeah, I think that there's um, a lot to be optimistic about here, but of course, you know, always good to temper the optimism for exactly how this may play out. So, um, I think that foremost among the uh, possibilities here that I see um, in terms of benefits is how this can make us more productive in our economy. If we think of you know, our hours worked and how much output we're able to generate from that, sort of at a you know, very um, simplistic economics interpretation, that if we can make ourselves produce more output with the same number of hours, then we can all be better off 
because we would be able to have more production, more output right. um, to, to supply our economy. So if we take that, you know, a few steps further, you know, if we have somebody who is working a job where they're able to, I don't know, um, gain, you know, let's say 10 new sales a day, or um, they're able to, um, you know, write, I don't know, 100 lines of code, that if we're able to pair them with an, a, a generative AI capability, that can actually make them um, able to do those things either better or faster, that we can expand the, the potential productivity of that, that worker. So if we scale that up to the like sort of economy-wide view, then we can make our economy richer by having Gen AI partnered with us in our work streams. Um, so really, I think that's that's quite exciting stuff. And there are some uh, studies that have already looked at this. Um, I would say probably one of the most um, appreciable areas where we see this is in software engineering, where if you pair some kind of tool that is able to kind of tackle uh, common coding challenges or roadblocks, uh, that you could sort of have, think of it like an autofill capability, rather than just sort of auto-completing a sentence, it's auto-completing lines of code for you. Yeah. And by doing that, you're able to sort of um, uh, accomplish a given you know, software engineering task um, I think it's like up to 40% faster when you actually have one of these these tools paired alongside a, a software engineer. Um, so that's, I think, an appreciable change. And again, if we scale that up, that could that could be huge. Um, so if we can make ourselves more productive with Gen AI, then it could lead to things like better living conditions. Um, and like I said, a richer economy. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's there's a lot there that I think that over the next um, five, maybe more likely 10 to 15 years, uh, where we actually see this develop incrementally and be implemented in a variety of different um, uh, functions, that Gen AI may actually be able to meaningfully grow our economy over time. Uh, I would say that the, the last time we saw such an appreciable change in how product productive people are in their jobs came during the software revolution from 95 to 2005. If we can repeat that, I think that that would be uh, fantastic news for the economy. Um, There's also other uses for AI, right? So it's not just Gen AI. There's also um, how we could, for example, enable uh, self-driving cars or, um, you know, speed up uh, uh, certain kinds of research or maybe medical advancements. Um, But I I won't go too far into the details there. Well, just, I mean, to touch on on the self-driving cars, because, you know, we deal with our clients uh, that are have multiple generations, right? So, yes, first of all, as a father of a 13-year-old, am I looking forward to self-driving cars? Yes, absolutely. But, I mean, we also have lots of clients that have to have that discussion with their parents about when is the time to mm-hmm. ask them to stop driving, right? To, quote-unquote, take the keys away. And that is a really difficult conversation to have because you're talking about someone's independence and someone's freedom and you're, you know, they're often see it as some sort of accusation of loss of acumen. So, you know, that's a tough, but if there were self-driving cars, that would make that discussion a lot easier. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that um, the, the technology for self-driving cars, it's sort of, it's close to being there. There's some cities that have, you know, all sorts of pilot programs where you can actually see self-driving vehicle fleets, Yeah. Um, but there's still issues with them. Um, I would say that, the, the two primary issues that I see with it is number one, that when you actually are on the road, there's just so many variables to account for that if you have a controlled environment, it can be you know a pretty simplistic task. It's kind of like a um, like a, a flow chart almost. But then when you get to spaces where maybe you don't have a well-defined road, maybe it's not painted, maybe you have people going all different directions, pedestrians and so on and so forth, it can become very difficult to account for all of that. And then you layer on top of it, like weather conditions and visibility and so on and so forth. It gets very quickly, very complicated. I would say the other factor is that a lot of self-driving technologies today sort of rely on kind of having a a human element still on the road, that there is somebody to take initiative if you're in some kind of log jam. That if you're, you know, let's say at a four-way intersection, and you have three self-driving cars approaching it from three angles and then a, a human approaching it from a fourth, you could assume that that human will take the initiative to sort of figure out that that log jam 
Whereas those other cars, they may just sit there waiting on somebody to take action first because they don't want to have some kind of, you know, safety malfunction where they yeah. you know, get into an accident because they all decide to go at the same time because nobody would take initiative. So that's, that's another sort of key challenge. But over time, you know, this technology sure has developed more slowly than we could have hoped for, but it has still continued to develop. The fact that we have these things on the road at all, I think is a testament to how far we've come. So, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, to call it quits on any of that. I actually think that there's still a case for optimism there. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, my car has like a self-parking functionality, which I haven't used in the three years that I've owned my car because I'm a control freak. Uh, no, <laughs> say it isn't so. <laughs> so the thought, and quite admittedly, like I'm not a great parker, but the, I rather park myself than allow the vehicle to do its thing and park with precision. Bad, no, I'll probably be one parking. of those people with my hands on the wheel. <laughs> exactly. Like, you can do it, but with training wheels. I trust you, but not that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bad parking uh, control freak. Exactly. Um, Ashley, you've spoken about AI affecting three broad categories of companies. Can you kind of touch on those different categories for us? Sure. And I, I think that, you know, there's many ways of slicing and dicing this, but I like to sort of simply approach it with three pretty broad buckets. And that is that we have the enablers of AI. So what may some refer to as the, the picks and shovels approach. Um, then we have another bucket, which is the adopters of AI, how we actually integrate this into the economy. And then we have the responders. So those, those problems that arise because of AI, how do we respond to them potentially with uh, you know, additional AI? Um, so in the enablers uh, bucket, just let's begin there. This is, I think, where we've seen a lot of the price action already. It is those um, those tech companies that are building um, this this software to begin with. Um, it is those large treasure troves of data that are necessary to really make these things truly intelligent or perhaps differentiated. Um, that you know we we uh, we rely on that for really enabling these systems. And then as part of all of this, there's the hardware component. So we have a massive amount of semiconductors, so like these these chips and um, and you know in many cases uh, uh, video cards, these processors that are really specialized for this task of training AI models. You need a lot of computing power <laughs> in order to make these things happen. And so the I think the the first area that we've really seen AI take off this year has been in semiconductors precisely because of the huge amount of demand that goes into training these models, but also maintaining them. For example, every time you log into, for example, ChatGPT, and you ask it a question, there is compute that's going on to actually make that happen. So we need a lot of computing resources, those enablers for this AI uh, um, you know, revolution, if you want to call it that, or trend, if you prefer, uh, to really take off. Then on the adopters front, I think that we've sort of seen inklings of this emerging, uh, but this is, again, those sorts of um, use cases that have been found to really integrate AI into a product or service or business model to either make things more efficient or to make a, a product better. Um, that I think this is the area that we'll probably see maybe over the next two, three, maybe even five years to really be the key area of development for exactly how we see this rolled out into products. We've seen some early use cases already, for example, in, in some search engines that has been integrated as a feature to help understand your search results or parse them in a different way. Um, but I, I think that that's really just the, the surface that we're scratching right now. I think there's so much more that we can do on that front. And then finally, again, the responders, we mentioned a bit of cybersecurity threats earlier. Uh, this is where I think we can really use AI to respond to these challenges that emerge because of AI. That, for example, and you may have heard of, uh, of deepfakes uh, as one challenge emerging from um, AI. And this is really uh, about being able to record a video of yourself and use a video of somebody else to then take somebody else's likeness and voice and mannerisms and be able to create a video that is entirely your own production, but looks and sounds exactly like somebody else. And of course, this can sound quite scary quite quickly, yeah. but in the same process, the exact same process that, uh, that allows that video to be constructed, there are, again, these sorts of, of, uh, of you could think of them as watermarks that 
uh, allow an AI system to sort of detect that something's not right here, that this is actually a manufactured thing. This isn't a, a true original video, rather it's the output of some kind of algorithm. And so uh, the fact that we can do that says that, again, there's that kind of AI arms race where we can use that kind of technology to respond to those new threats. Uh, so there's a whole lot more to be said on the responders category, uh, but that's just one example of, of many to show that we can actually use these sorts of technologies that are at the same time as a threat as a, a solution to it. Great. And of those big sort of broad categories, are there sub-segments that you think, you know, portfolios should be focusing on? Are there particular, hey, this is where it's going next? So, um, you know, I, I've laid out before that the sort of enablers, um, that sort of category has taken off first. Yeah. Um, and I think that then that makes sense because we don't really know where all of this is going quite yet, but we know that there's... Um, a great deal of demand that is chasing exactly how we may construct these systems, whatever that end state may be. Um, so that's feeding a lot of you know demand and price action there. Uh, but what takes root from there? You know, I, I think that is is anyone's guess. But as I I noted, I think that's the adopters category yeah. of exactly how we roll this out into a product or service is something to be excited about. Um, the the area that's um i'm curious about is how this is applied into sort of like like biopharmaceuticals so for example in biochemistry you know you, you mentioned paul that you have a brother who teaches biology yeah. there is a sort of grammar that goes into how exactly biochemistry works right and if we can have an ai model that's capable of understanding human language why can't we then go and apply it as well Absolutely. to you know, for example protein synthesis and so there's actually a, a variety of, uh, of models that have been developed exactly for that to see, see exactly how we can approach uh, biopharmaceutical research. So I think that that's one interesting area. I'm not going to go into and say that that's where we want to target, but right, I think yeah, that that's, yeah. um, you know, that's one example of many of exactly how we may see this play out in other functions. Well, and, you know, one of the examples that <clears throat> we were talking about earlier is just, you know, a little bit simpler than biochemistry is, is travel. I mean, and if you look at the evolution of travel, where we used to have travel agents, and that was really, you know, you either had to call the airlines yourself, or you had to call a travel agent, and that was how you got access, and they knew they could shop the flights. Well, that kind of went away with the online flight shopping, and you can do comparisons yourself, where... Now, as that evolves, you could actually say, look, I like a window seat. I like to leave at this time. I like to, and, hey, this is where I'm going. What should I go see and have it go research pages out and pull back? This is where most people like to go. And if this is the kind of experience you want to have, and it could book your trip for you. Yeah, I think that's completely possible. And I think that um, what you sort of highlight there is an example of how we can get people to not just like go online and fill out a form of exactly what kind of criteria they're looking for, mm -hmm. but be able to speak to these sorts of tools or platforms in a way that they're using natural human language, sort of like you're talking to, I don't know, like a customer service agent in a chat window, but it's able to do exactly what you just described by just you, you know, specifying exactly what you're looking for. Right. Um, so that's, that's a one, you know, I think smaller example of the, of how we could apply this technology in a way that could be, you know, about not just creating a flight itinerary, but also right. it could be about planning your whole vacation, right? Everything yeah. from ideas to, you know, actually making the, the arrangements themselves. Awesome. So longer term questions. I mean, AI has evolved so much in the last one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. How do you think it's going to impact our economy in the future as it continues to evolve forward? Sure. So um, I mentioned earlier about uh, uh, the productivity front, and I think that that's There's where no we can see appreciable it. gains over time. Yeah, um, that'll be sort of like a, a slow burn. Um, I don't think that that's going to be like a an overnight sort of wow, it popped in the figures. There's AI. Rather, I think it'll sort of build up over time. Um, I've seen the sort of range of productivity estimates be sort of all over the place. Everything from around like 1% per year to um, like 3.5% per year, which I think is nuts. Uh, 
if, if that were to happen, that'd be, you know, I think fantastic for everybody, but I, I don't think that's quite likely. Um, but I think that a, a good model um, that I've been using is to sort of think, again, back to the sort of um, the ICT or um, information communication technology revolution of 1995 to 2005. You can see that mark in U.S. data that it really had a pre an appreciable effect on productivity over time. That if we're able to do that again, you know, if, if you remember like the, the, the 90s and early 2000s, that was a, a good time in the economy to be, you know, in a, in a growth stance. And I think, again, that that comes back to what was going on in the background with increases in productivity, among other factors, of course. Uh, so if we can have something like that, using that as a model, that we could have an appreciable change in, in uh, economic output that isn't just about, you know, for example, how we, uh, um, you know, approach, uh, you know, growth in our economy from the perspective of just technological change more generally, or, you know, having uh, more uh, higher value added processes, for example, but rather that we're able to do all kinds of functions um, at a, a greater scale and, and at, at a, essentially a cheaper price. Uh, so a lot to, to be said there. Um, I have some some figures that I put together, but I won't bore you with all the uh, the, the details there, but um, I, I think you should have the, the paper that I wrote on that. It's it's sort of a fun thought experiment to go through. So I think it's a, a, a probably nerdy way of putting that I think that there's a lot to be said here. Um, and I, I do think that even the most pessimistic forecasts about what Gen AI may do still suggest a, a pretty appreciable effect on the economy over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, going back to the adoption and how that's going to unfold, you know, one example that we give to clients is when we, especially if they're in fear of jobs going away, um, we like to say, hey, you know, TurboTax has been around for a really long time, but there are still plenty of CPAs. And, and we use, we talk to CPAs all the time. There's some really good software out there, but it's a tool. It's not a replacement. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, and CPAs are using, you know, very advanced tax software, but they're using it as an aid, not as a replacement. And it just allows them to do more time to research and how to do things more creatively or, or learn more about tax code and the changes and keep up with the changes. I, I think that's a great point, Paul. And actually, that, that reminds me of one of my favorite things I've heard on this topic, which is there's somebody I was speaking to who, who described it as I'm not scared of AI taking my job. I'm scared of somebody who is better at using AI yeah. taking my job. And I think that's exactly your point. It's a tool, yeah. not a replacement, that it matters about how essentially how technologically savvy you are with these sorts of tools for that kind of you know change over time that is incremental that can make you a better employee or a better you know person running your business or or so on and so forth. So I, I think that you know therein lies, I think, the meat of this story that's it's just another tool that I think we can get accustomed to over time. Awesome. So, you know, I, and we need to let you get to your back to your tea. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm due for a refill. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh dear. Well, we really guess. No, you've been super generous. But just you know, to wrap up, what do you think is the next big phase of AI? What do you see as the next? You know, is there a a, a, a chat GPT moment? around the corner that we should expect some sort of future explosion or uh, where do you think that's going to be? So I, I wish I had the sort of foresight to predict yeah. when that may be or what that may be. That would be, um, that would be fantastic. I'd probably quit my day job in that case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that um, what's next is about how we get again from that sort of proof of concept stage, which I think that in many ways we're sort of, you know, maybe sort of still 80% there and haven't yet moved away from that. Um, how we get from that proof of concept to something that is really a, a truly remarkable change in how we're actually approaching, you know, some kind of business process or work task or function uh, that really, I think, makes a difference in you know, how productive we are, how we actually get to those meaningful changes I was getting at, how we actually make that happen, right? So, you know, maybe it's a some um, some huge product that comes out that is able to really wrap up this functionality in a in a nice neat bow. Um, I know that, for example, just integrating this into operating systems is already a a goal for some of the major tech companies that they want to actually see this be a, a day to day capability 
that people can use in the same way that they may turn to a search engine. So I think that you know there's there's those sorts of moments where we have this rolled out into products that you know maybe we just need a sort of moment that we didn't yet think of that is beyond the examples I already gave that actually has an appreciable impact beyond just wow this is cool but also just you know wow this is helpful right yeah awesome definitely actually actually so much for being yeah. here we are so lucky to have you and um you mentioned your your white paper series four-part series fantastic information if any listeners are interested in getting their hands on it we're happy to share that off share that um with anybody just reach out it was sounds great. a good amount of work and really well written thank yeah. you yeah and thank you so much for having me as well this is a lot of fun yeah i appreciate it thanks ashley thank you so that's our episode for today thank you for listening if you found this topic interesting or useful please let us know or if there are other topics you'd like us to address let us know that too we'd love to hear from you Thanks for joining us, and thanks for being invested. The RAND Group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.